Uh, you excited to get into the Word together? All right, good deal. Grab your Bibles, if you will. We'll jump right into some, some time in God's Word. Last week, uh, we cast a vision for this year uh, for what it looks like to follow Christ together and to fish for men. This is the call that Jesus gave to his first disciples, Matthew 4, 19. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus never let up on that vision. It's always been his vision. At the, at the end of his life, he gathered that 120 or so followers that were there. Um, and he said to them, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's always been the mission, and that is our mission. As a church, we, we don't have to reinvent the wheel of why we exist. That's why we exist, to make disciples of all nations. What we do need to do is to think creatively about how we intend to do that. So last time uh, we were here, I emphasized what we're calling a discipleship pathway. And I want to just kind of walk through that quickly again. The discipleship pathway has four points of emphasis for developing you and me as disciples of Jesus and disciple makers, uh, as followers of Christ and fishers of men. You should know just up front, you should know that Mountain View Church wants to change you. I know that's crazy because we love you just as you are, but we love you enough not to leave you that way, right? And that's, that's the gospel of Jesus is that he is constantly changing us from who, who we used to be to who he wants us to be. And we as a church want to partner with Christ in your sanctification, in your salvation and your sanctification. So every one of us should be changing more and more into the character of Christ. So what is Mountain View Church's plan for your sanctification? Well, it. It's four steps at least. There's probably more than this, but these are four pretty clear things that we put together. One, we want you to know God. Uh, we want you to know God. And there's a lot of ways that we do that. But uh, in this gathering, this weekly Sunday gathering, that's kind of the big moment for our church to come together. What we want to do is worship Christ. We want to study the Bible. And we want to do gospel-centered teaching. That's going to be the steady diet here at this church. We're going to teach the gospel. We're going to celebrate the gospel. We're going to point our attention and affection to Christ. This is how we feed the sheep. So we want you to know God. Secondly, we want you to find community. So we gather and now we begin to group in different groups. So find community. Uh, what, we, what we encouraged is uh, last time I mentioned this thing called life groups. It's just several families begin to come together once or twice a month, have a meal together, do life together, begin to build meaningful relationships. Gospel community is the model uh, of the New Testament church. You know, they gathered not just in the temple, but in each other's homes and broke bread together and prayed together. That was the model for the New Testament church. And this is the entry point for deeper fellowship within the flock. So we want you to be involved in a life group to find community so that these people you sit near uh, week after week, you begin to know who they are. You begin to know their names, their children, their struggles. You know how to pray for one another to find community. Third, we want you to make disciples. I know that sounds a bit redundant because that's what Jesus called us to do, right? Go, therefore, make disciples. But what we mean is we want you to get together with 
a small group of men or a small group of ladies, maybe three to five people every week for accountability, for Bible study, for developing spiritual disciplines, for for uh, discipling one another, for working together in tag team evangelism. Now that's that's a wild new thought, I think. You know, we, we often think about evangelism as an individualistic effort, but it's, it's not that way in the scriptures. It's a tag team thing. Jesus sent out his disciples two by two. He, he means for us to do this thing together. And so we want to learn to do that in groups together to get more and more fluent with the gospel. That's what we mean by make disciples. And then lastly, of course, we want to see each of us to change your world. What I mean by that is to, to go into your neighborhood or, or to go to the nations, to serve them, to love them, to speak the gospel. Some of these opportunities will come from here. Like as a church, we'll do some things together. We'll do a big serve day or we'll do mission trips to our mission partners. And you'll have an opportunity to go uh, work alongside some of our missionaries And some of it will happen just within your groups. You guys will get burdened about something and you want to do something together. Some of it will just happen in everyday life. You know, Jesus told his disciples, the fields are white unto harvest. Lift up your eyes. I'm convinced that many of us just miss what God's doing because we've got our heads down in our own stuff, in our own world. And Jesus says, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white unto harvest. So those four things, I just wanted to run through those quickly as a refresher. We want you to know God. We want you to find community to make disciples and change your world. And all of that, we're believing as a church, is the way that God is going to uh, sanctify you to make you a better follower and fisher of men. Now, one of the biggest contributors to your transformation as a disciple is your involvement and commitment to the local church. One of the biggest drivers for how great an impact we can make as a church is how deeply committed the members of this church are. So simply put, you need the church and the church needs you. So this is one of my goals for today's message. And really for the year is I want you to see that gospel mission and church membership work together. So for this year, my hope, I mentioned this last week, my hope is to see a hundred new covenant members to Mountain View Church. That's my goal for this year. Now let's talk for just a minute about membership. So today's message is a gospel mission and church membership. We don't often think of those things together, but what I'm hoping is today to show you that those things are meant to work hand in hand. But our culture is very individualistic. We love the idea of me and Jesus kind of Christianity. Like I could be a Christian and not be involved in a church. Well, you won't find that concept in the New Testament. The New Testament Christian that's not committed to a local church is nowhere in the Bible. A lot of people say today, well, I can be a Christian and not go to church. Well, of course, that may be true. You're not obligated to go to church in order to go to heaven. But it's a bit like driving your car in a pitch dark night without the headlights on. You can do it, but it's dangerous. It's not safe. It's not how it was intended. It's possible. 
But it's not the smartest path. It's not the best, most effective path. So some people say things to me like this. Maybe you've heard this. You know, I really love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. Anybody heard that before? Anybody? I've, I've heard that, right? And, and I get it. Like, I totally get it. The church has, uh, has lots of warts and lots of ugly. In fact, in, in our particular area of this country, a lot of people choose not to go to church because they've been hurt by a church, right? That's, that's pretty standard, pretty typical. I get that. I totally get it. The thing we've got to realize is the church is full of broken people. Every one of us in this room are broken. None of us is perfect, right? In fact, that's the reason we're here. Because we're here to worship the one who is perfect. None of us claim to be perfect. We're all looking to change to be more like the one who is perfect. We, we come here as broken people. So the claim of this church is not that we are perfect, right? We're a big old mess. Uh, if, if you find a perfect church, don't join it. Because then it won't be perfect anymore, right? <laughs> Uh, here's, here's the thing, like this is a mess, but it's a, it's a full of people who are a mess looking to the one who is constantly making us more like himself. But I hear people say all the time, I, I, I love Jesus, I just can't stand in church. And it just always rubs me because Jesus said that the church is his bride. The church is his body. So I'm just trying to imagine the moment where you walk up to me and you say, Justin, bro, I love you. But I just can't stand your bride. I'm just going to tell you, that's not going to go well. <laughs> me and her, we're, we're one. And uh, you can't go hating on me and still be friends. You can't go hating on her and still be friends with me. We're one. Jesus said the church is his bride. Jesus said the church is his body. Right? So to say, I love Jesus, but I can't stand in the church, would be like husbands and wives. Imagine your husband or your wife saying to you, honey, I really love you, but I can't stand your body. <laughs> Some of you have heard that, right? <laughs> I've probably heard that. But the, the reality is, that's not how Christ intended it. He's intended for us to not be saved just as an individual and to be one lonesome candle. He wants us to be a bold, beautiful, blazing fire for his glory. And that happens through togetherness. It happens as we join one another as members of the same body. We could go many places in the scripture, but I wanted to stay in the book of Ephesians. And so that's where we'll be. If you want to be serious about the mission of making disciples, you will also be serious about your commitment to the body of Christ. Mission and membership work together. If we truly set our hearts on making disciples, and that's, our, that's what we want to do with our lives, we will give ourselves to covenant membership to the local church. And we'll see today that from Scripture, Jesus saved us into Community. It happens from the moment of salvation. So we're back in the book of Ephesians today. We're going to do a bit of an overview, really, of the whole letter. But I want to focus in on one main truth. I want to see one beautiful, maybe two beautiful things about Christ today. So here's what I want you to see. Christ is our peace. 
want you to say that with me. Real loud. Ready? Christ is our peace. Christ is our peace. In Ephesians 2.14, the scripture says he himself is our peace. I want to flesh that out. See what that means today. If you're a follower of Jesus, the truths about Christ today are going to stir your heart with love and gratitude. If you're not yet a Christian, we're so glad you're here. What we want you to know is that Jesus is the peace you're looking for. So, God, we ask that you save someone today. Lord, we pray that people in this room would stop dating the church, would get serious about following and fishing for men. Amen. The saving work of Jesus brings peace both vertically and horizontally. That's what we're going to see. Would you stand with me as we get into Ephesians? Just going to read a section of chapter 2, and then we're going to look, kind of take a a 30,000-foot view of Really, the whole letter. So this book, uh, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul. It's one of one of the last ones he writes. But he writes to the church at Ephesus. Do you get that? The, the church that's meeting in the city of Ephesus. So this is a letter to a local church. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 13. I just want us to read uh, from there to the end of the chapter. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him. We both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints And members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to see you in this text. Would you just reveal yourself for who you are? I want to get a clear picture of who you are, what you're doing. What do you want to do in this place with this people? Father, I pray for the men and women in this room that have a love for Christ but have yet to translate that into a real commitment to the church. I pray, God, that you work that in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Let me just start by saying that in this whole chapter, what we see is um, a bouncing back and forth of pronouns. 
The chapter begins in Ephesians 2. It starts, and you, second person, you, individual, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You, second person pronoun. Well, then in verse 5, we read, and when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ Now it goes back. By grace, you have been saved. And and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. We can keep going. And what you see is this. There's the bouncing back and forth of individual and corporate pronouns like you and us, you and we, you and us. It it bounces back and forth. And the, the thing is, you are saved Individually, you have an individual experience of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but that immediately brings you into a corporate reality of people who have also had that shared experience. So we have an individual encounter with Christ that immediately brings us into a corporate body, the body of Christ. In Christ, you have a new father. And a new family. And that happens simultaneously. In Christ, you have a new father and a new family. What I want us to see in in our text that we're focusing on today is two things about Christ. I want to exalt Jesus in two ways. The first one is this. Christ is our peace. Christ is our peace. I just want to make mention that this is now a plural possessive pronoun, right? He's not just your peace. He's our peace. So now we're talking about the corporate collective body. And Christ is our peace. That's really significant. And let me explain why. From the beginning, breaking God's law has brought about at least two painful forms of separation or alienation. At least two very painful forms of separation from the very beginning. And here they are. Sinners are separated from God. Shame and guilt pushes us to hide ourselves and to cover ourselves from God. We're separated from God. And secondly... We are separated from one another. We're eager to play the blame game. Now, let's think that out for just a minute. Let's go all the way back to the beginning when this whole thing unfolded. Adam and Eve in the garden. You remember they disobeyed God. They ate from the tree that God told them. In the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. What happened in the moment of disobedient rebellion to God? What happened in the moment is two massive separations. One, they were separated from God immediately. And two, they were separated from one another. Let's flesh it out. Here's here's what that looks like. Um, What happened? They realized immediately they were what? Naked. And what did they do? They ran and hid. And they found some leaves and tried to cover themselves, right? Shame and guilt. That's what it does to us. We realize all of a sudden... We're dirty, we're a mess, 
And so what do I do when I realize I'm a mess? I want to hide that. I want to do my best to cover that. I don't want anybody to know that. And who am I hiding from most of all? God. Ironically, something happens in your mind and you think you can actually hide from God. Well, God comes into the garden and he says, who told you you were naked? Why are you hiding from me? This is what happens when we are separated from God, our creator, and sin does that. We, we, we want to hide and cover our sin. It's shame. It's guilt. And that's a painful form of separation. What was the second thing that happened? When God said, why don't you do this? What did they do? Was that woman you gave me? Immediate separation between the two of them. They began to blame one another. She says, what was the servant you put here? Right? I mean, there's this constant pointing of the finger that's a separation of one another. This is the beginning of why we need peace. And here's what we see in this beautiful text. We see that our greatest problem of separation from God and separation from one another, Jesus comes to resolve it. He has come to be our peace. Church, essentially every problem we face is an outworking of these two separations. Separation from God and separation from one another. Think about it for a minute. Is there a sin that isn't because of your brokenness with God or with another person? No. Think specifically even about the Ten Commandments. You could break them down into two categories, right? Relationship to God and relationship to your fellow man. You should have no other gods before me. Do not use my name in vain. We go down the list. There's four that relate to your vertical relationship. And there's six that relate to your horizontal relationship. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Honor your father and mother. These things are horizontal issues. So we think about it, the two greatest problems we have are our vertical separation between us and God and a horizontal separation between us and our fellow man. The law of God was given not so that we could measure up, but rather to show us how we fall so short. We are sinners in need of a peace bringing savior. And Jesus tells us that all of the law can be summed up in just two ways. What were they? Love God and what? Love your neighbor. He said, love God completely with all that you are, your, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And unless you think that this simplification makes the law any easier or less condemning, it doesn't. It just makes it clearer who is the one who has come to rescue us? Think for a moment when Jesus gave that teaching about the, the law. He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then the question came, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told this beautiful story called the Good Samaritan. Are you familiar with the story? A man is beaten and left for dead in a ditch. And all the people who should have helped him walked past him. And yet the outsider, the outcast of society, sees the man broken in the ditch 
dismounts from his camel or horse, donkey, whatever it was, gets down in the ditch, bandages his wounds, puts him up onto the donkey, takes him into the town, puts him in a hotel, cares for him, leaves and says, if there's any more debt, I'll pay it when I come back. I'll be back. Now, unless we think that that story of the Good Samaritan is teaching us, first of all, how we can be better neighbors, we've missed it. The biggest point of that story is to say that Jesus is the Good Samaritan. He was the outsider who came to rescue us broken and beaten and wounded in our sin. When all the world passes us by, Christ has come to be our peace, to rescue, to lift us out of our mess, to heal us, to pay all of our sin debt. And he promises, I'll come back for you. Jesus is the fulfillment of this law. Christ is the one who mends our wounds. And he alone is able to love God fully, and he alone is able to love man perfectly. He was the measure of perfection, the plumb line, as Amos prophesied in the Old Testament. He was uh, the one who came to rescue us. Now get this, this is really important. By living in perfect union with the Father and in perfect union with his fellow man. Think about how Jesus came. He came in perfect union with the Father. He said on many occasions, I don't do what I want to do. I do what the Father tells me to do. The only words I speak are what the Father tells me to speak. And then as he related to his fellow man, it was in perfection. There was no problem with any of the six commandments or others. And yet... This Jesus who came to redeem us by being perfect in every way. He did all of that only to endure the hatred and murder of men. An ultimate separation from men and from the Father on our behalf. Isn't it wild how Jesus came in perfect union with God and man. And yet endured the worst kinds of separation between man. But he endured that suffering so that he could bring us to God. He came to be our peace. Now, I love what 1 Peter 3.18 says. In fact, I want to put this on the screen. If you haven't underlined this in your Bible or you haven't memorized it, I encourage you to do this. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, the one who keeps the law, vertical and horizontal, the righteous for the unrighteous, me and you, we, we people who are such a mess, right? He came, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. This is the work of Jesus Christ, our peace. So I want us to get a grip on two big ways that Christ is our peace. First, in Christ, you are reconciled to God. And that's the beauty of this scripture, right? Ephesians 2, the, the whole chapter begins this way. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 4 says, but God who is rich in mercy made you alive. This is what it means to be uh, reconciled to your God. 
Ephesians 2. Let's just, let's just hear the bad news for a minute. You were dead in your sin. You were a son of disobedience. You were a child of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God made you alive by grace. You didn't deserve it. He rescued you and brought you near by the blood of Christ. Jesus bought your life and he has reconciled you to God. Christ is our peace vertically. But check this out. He didn't just come to do a vertical work. We love that. We celebrate in that. But now's where it gets messy. Because in 1 John, John writes and he says, you say you love God, but you hate your brother. You're a liar. You're a liar. John's making it clear that real love for God vertically works its way out in love for our fellow man horizontally. So in Christ, we're reconciled to God. And secondly, in Christ, we are reconciled to one another. All the brokenness and enmity against one another has been overcome by the peace of Christ. Now, this is huge. Now, unless you think I'm, I'm making an overstatement or hyperbole or maybe you doubt it, let's flesh it out a little bit. Because I'm talking about racial battles, political battles, economic class distinctions, all kinds of hatred and malice and anger. All those things are made right in Christ who reconciles us to one another because he himself is our peace. Listen, he is our peace. Now, it didn't take long for Adam and Eve and the sin they experienced, the brokenness they experienced with God to make its way into horizontal brokenness. Right? Didn't take long before Eve was blaming Adam and Adam was blaming Eve. And we don't even have to go further than one generation to where envy and strife works its way into murder. Adam and Eve's children, their two sons, one kills the other because of jealousy. We didn't even make it to the second generation of creation without having murder. In our broken relationships with our fellow man. What has happened? And who can fix it? Christ. He is our peace. I'm going to try to flesh this out as quickly as I can. We, the church, are a new kind of people. We're a new kind of people. First Peter, this is also one of my favorite passages. First Peter chapter two, uh, verses nine and 10. Just let this wash over you as we read it. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Right. One, at one time we had nothing in common. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Now, you can look around this room. I mean, just go ahead, look around the room. There's no reason for you to love these people, <laughs> right? I mean, these are some weird people in here. I'm just being real. I mean, like, you just look at me. There's no reason for you to like or love me apart from Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ. And that's the beauty of what God is making in His community. Is it's the people who have no reason to be together. Apart from Christ. But here's the thing. Christ is enough. And He is the one who breaks down every dividing wall of hostility. In Ephesians chapter 2, the specific wall that he's talking about is this division between Jew and Gentile. Specifically in that day, uh, Gentiles could only come so close to God. And the Jews thought they were special because, you know, they were God's chosen people. Well, in Christ, that wall and every other wall has been broken down so that God is making a people who were not a people. But now they are the people, the people of God. And we can look, it's, it's good, you know, anytime you begin a journey, if you're going to jump in the car and you're going to go to Orlando, Florida, it's good to know the destination when you start out, right? If you get in the car and you just put it in drive and you're like, where are you going? Uh, we're just going to go. That's a really strange way to take a trip. Some of you may love that, but not, not me, I know, I know. Uh, not me, though. Uh, if I'm going somewhere, I want to know where I'm going when I start. Well, let me tell you something. You want to know where this church thing is headed? This is so beautiful, y'all. Go to Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 7, and what you see is the people gathered around the throne of the Lord Jesus from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. When you talk about people of all colors, all tribes, all traditions, all cultures, people that are so diverse and have nothing in common. They have all the reason in the world to hate each other, but they don't. Why? Because they have one king who is Christ and he is our peace. That's where this is headed. That's where we're going. And we today should be preparing for eternity by getting a grip on a birth of reality that we now have a reconciled relationship to God by the blood of Jesus. But His blood did two miraculous works of peace. Vertical peace with God and horizontal peace with one another. We can let go of all the things that seem to divide us because Christ is our peace. Now, there's another beautiful picture about Christ in this text, and we'll be quicker here. But secondly, Christ is our cornerstone. He's our cornerstone. Ephesians 2.20. Listen, you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. cornerstone. We're talking about the temple here. This is a metaphor for the temple. And he's saying that God is building a new temple. The, the chapter ends this way, talking about how we are being built together into a temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. But Christ is our cornerstone. This is that first stone that sets and, and everything else is built upon it. It's Christ. How is he our cornerstone? How is Christ our cornerstone? Here's where I want to overview the, the book, or at least part of it. 
I'm just going to do it quickly. In Ephesians 1, 7, Jesus forgives through his blood. There is no remission of sin apart from the shedding of blood. And it's in the blood of Christ that we have our cornerstone. Jesus reigns in his resurrection. Ephesians 1, 19 through 22. I love this because it, it points to the fact that there are no authorities higher or more supreme than him. Doesn't matter who's in the White House, Jesus is on the throne. Jesus reigns in his resurrection, Ephesians 1, 19 through 22. Jesus reconciles us to God and to one another, Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. Jesus grants access to the Father, Ephesians 2, 17 and 18. If you didn't get that, talk about New immigration law. Jesus tear down the wall, but then he's the access. There's only one way in. Now, anybody can come in. There's no more wall. I know I'm getting political here, sorry. There's no more wall. You want to you immigrate into the kingdom of God? Anyone is welcome, but there's only one access point. Jesus. You must come through Christ or you will not come. Ephesians 3, 17, or Ephesians 2, 17 and 18, it says that he grants access to the Father. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Christ is our access to God. Ephesians 3, 17, Jesus dwells in your hearts. I love that. You're never alone. He's with you. Everywhere you go, Christ is with you. He dwells in your heart. There's many more, but I'll stop with this one. Jesus equips the church. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. He equips the church. He didn't leave us to do this without him. He gives us all that we need. Apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. He gives us all that we need to raise us up into the maturity of Christ. Jesus equips the church. All that's glorious, right? Christ is our peace. Christ is our cornerstone. But it's kind of up in the theological clouds. So let's bring it down to, uh, to earth. Bring it down to every day for a minute. We just finished a message series about building the kingdom and battling the enemy. Well, make no mistake. We build the kingdom by displaying and declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we're called to do. Display and declare the gospel. So we till the soil, we sow the seeds, we water the seeds, we watch and we worship as Christ causes growth. That's his job, right? We, we sow, we till, we water, we do work in the field, but who causes the growth? Christ does. That's, that's on him. But as the church, we display the gospel. Ephesians 4.3 says that we eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Jesus said that all the world will know that we are his disciples by how we love one another. By how we love one another. We display the power of the gospel, the fact that Christ is our peace, by how we love one another. How does that happen apart from commitment to each other? If I told my wife, hey, I love you, I'm just not committed to you. 
That wouldn't go well. Right? Honey, I'd really like to marry you. But this whole, like, taking a vow and, like, doing a wedding, just not about that. Don't really want to do that. Seems a little too official. I'm more of, like, a real natural kind of lover. A little too institutional for me. I really just like to kind of hang out with you for a lot of years. That's not how we do life, right? That's not how we do real love. It's real love happens in commitment. And if we're going to display the love of Christ to the world, we're going to display the gospel by how we love each other, it needs to happen in commitment. So this is how the mission of the gospel meets membership in the local church. If we're going to be serious about God's mission, displaying the power of Christ as our peace and Christ as our cornerstone, that has to happen in commitment to one another. We step into the everyday stuff of life together. This is what life is. Like I told you, we're coming out of the clouds, we're getting into real life. So as a committed group of people, when you get angry, when you get angry, and you do, and you will. Apostle Paul says, as a church, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, we always use this verse just for a husband and wife. But who's he writing to? Who's he writing to? The church. He doesn't have like a little parenthetical moment to tell, you know, wives not to go to sleep when they're still mad at their husband. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, be committed to each other enough to deal with your anger. Church, be committed to deal with your anger. And how does he say deal with it? Forgive as Christ forgave you. This is Ephesians 4, 26 through, through um, 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is what it means to be committed to the body. Then he goes on, he says, if we're going to display the power of Christ as our peace and our cornerstone, it means we've got to live pure lives. Ephesians 5, 8, he says, walk as children of the light. You're no longer people of darkness. So walk as children of the light. So put away sexual immorality, put away all those things and walk in the light. Now, why is that something he writes to the local church? Well, because if I start walking in darkness, I need you to call me back into the light. This is where we're committed to one another. If I'm not committed to you and you come to me and go, hey, what are you doing, man? I'm going to be like, well, I'm out of here. I don't know who you think you are talking to me like that. No, I'm a mess and I need your help. Because the darkness is constantly pulling on me. I don't know about you, but I need people. Ephesians 5.21, he says, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, how do you submit yourselves to one another if you're not in a committed relationship to each other? How do we do that? And who am I submitting to? Am I submitting to the, the, the podcast preacher that I listen to? No. In the church, God has established a system. How, how we 
have leadership and we submit to leadership and we follow, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? What about when your home life gets messy? Right? We're trying to display that, that Christ is our peace and Christ is our cornerstone. What about when marriage is messy? Well, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Children, honor and obey your parents. But this is really down to earth stuff, right? But it's how we put on display the love of Christ. It goes on, employees are bondservants as it's written here. Bondservants, obey your masters. And masters, don't mistreat them knowing that you have a master. So we're talking about employees and bosses and work. I mean, this is real life stuff. And he says, you want to you have a powerful testimony for Christ? Be a hard worker at your job and be accountable to your church family about that. This is real, right? This is every day. So as the church, we display the gospel in all of these ways. And as the church, we declare the gospel. Now, the letter ends where we left off. Um, with Paul saying, pray for me. We left off with the, with the armor of God. He says, put on the shoes of readiness given by the gospel of what? Peace. There it is again, right? Christ is our peace. Put on the shoes given by the gospel of peace. Peace with God, peace with one another. I now am ready to talk about it. Paul says, put on those shoes. And then he says, but pray for me that words may be given to me and I may be bold enough to tell people about it. So what is he saying? We as a church display the gospel in all of these really practical ways of committed love to one another. And we declare the gospel with our words. So church, together we aim for this. Be followers of King Jesus and to fish for men. And here's what we're saying is that if we're going to do this well, we must do it together. And we must be committed to one another. If you want to be serious about the mission of God, you'll get serious about membership in the church. So I just want to conclude with two action steps for us. Uh, As our worship team comes. The first thing I want you to do this morning is just worship Christ. Just worship Christ. Get this. He himself is our peace. And he is our cornerstone. The gospel is beautiful. And if you're here, you've never truly surrendered your life to Christ. Let me tell you, you can be at peace with God today. Jesus Christ Shed his blood in your place so that you could be made right with God and right with one another. Jesus bore your sins so you could be forgiven. And he wants to call you into a life of following him. If you're not a member of a gospel centered church. The second thing I want to call you to do is commit to membership. This is really not trendy, by the way. You know, if you're going to start a new church in our culture, you really want to grow it with new young people. Don't tell them to commit to membership because people are non-committal today. 
Church, you don't have a choice. If you want to get serious about Christ, you have to be serious about the church. There's just no way to do this mission effectively without real commitment. So I want to challenge you, if you're not a member of a church, to commit as a member of a local church. This would be a great one. But if this is not your cup of tea, that's okay. Here's what you need to do. Find a church that preaches the Bible, that makes much of King Jesus, and that calls you and equips you into his mission in the world. That's it. Everything else doesn't really matter that much. Those things are most important. And if this is that place for you, then let's talk about membership. I want to help you to be committed to the body so you can be really effective in the mission of Jesus Christ in this world. If this place is not for you, then it's great that you're visiting, but go connect to another church. Go commit to a local body of Christ. Church, I love you. I'm happy to be doing this life together. Let's pray.